Chapter 2 What Darwin Didn't Know About Sex Quote, We are not here concerned with hopes or fears, only with truth as far as our reason permits us to discover it. Unquote. Charles Darwin, The Descent of Man A fig leaf can hide many things, but a human erection isn't one of them. The standard narrative of the origins and nature of human sexuality claims to explain the development of a deceitful, reluctant sort of sexual monogamy. According to this oft-told tale, heterosexual men and women are pawns in a proxy war directed by our opposed genetic agendas. The whole catastrophe, we're told, results from the basic biological designs of males and females. Men strain to spread their cheap and plentiful seed far and wide, while still trying to control one or a few females in order to increase their paternity certainty. Meanwhile, women are guarding their limited supply of metabolically expensive eggs from unworthy suitors. But once they've roped in a provider husband, they're quick to hike up their skirts when ovulating for quick and dirty clandestine mating opportunities with square-jawed men of obvious genetic superiority. It's not a pretty picture. Biologist Joanne Roughgarden points out that it's an image little changed from that described by Darwin 150 years ago. Quote, The Darwinian narrative of sex roles is not some quaint anachronism, she writes. Restated in today's biological jargon, the narrative is considered proven scientific fact. Sexual selection's view of nature emphasizes conflict, deceit, and dirty gene pools. Unquote. No less an authority than the advice of the advice goddess herself, syndicated columnist Amy Alkin, voices the popularized expression of this oft-told tale. Quote, there are a lot of really bad places to be a single mother, but probably one of the worst ever was 1.8 million years ago in the savannah. The ancestral women who successfully passed their genes on to us were those who were choosy about who they went under a bush with, weeding out the dads from the cads. Men had a different genetic imperative to avoid bringing home the bison for kids who weren't theirs and evolved a regard to regard girls who give it up too easily as too high risk for anything beyond a roll on the rock pile. Unquote. Note how much how so much fits into this tidy package. The vulnerabilities of motherhood, separating dads from cads, paternal investment, 
jealousy, and the sexual double standard. But as they say at the airport, beware of tidy packages you didn't pack yourself. Quote, as for an English lady, I have almost forgotten what she is, something very angelic and good. Unquote. Charles Darwin in a letter from the HMS Beagle. Quote, Gentry had to be pitied, rather pitied. They had so few advantages in respect of love. They could say they longed for a kiss from a bouncy wife in a vicarage garden. They couldn't say she roared under me and clutched my back, and I shot my specimen to blazes. Unquote. Roger MacDonald, Mr. Darwin's shooter. The best place to begin a reassessment of our conflicted relationship with sexuality may be with Charles Darwin himself. Darwin's brilliant work inadvertently lent an enduring scientific patina, rather patina, to what is essentially anti-erotic bias. Despite his genius, what Darwin didn't know about sex could fill volumes. This is one of them. On the Origin of Species was published in 1859, a time when little was known about human life before the classical era. Prehistory, the period we define as the 200,000 or so years when anatomically modern people lived without agriculture and, and writing, was a blank slate theorist could fill only with conjecture. Until Darwin and others began to loosen the link between religious doctrine and scientific truth, guesses about the distant past were restricted by church teachings. The study of primates was in its infancy. Given the scientific data Darwin never saw, it's not surprising that this great thinker's blind spots can be as illuminating as his insights. For example, Darwin's ready acceptance of Thomas Hobbes' still-famous characterization of prehistoric human life as having been, quote, solitary, poor, nasty, brutish, and short, unquote, left these mistaken assumptions embedded in present-day theories of human sexuality. Asked to imagine prehistoric human sex, most of us conjure the hackneyed image of the caveman dragging a dazed woman by her hair with one hand, a club on the other. As we'll see, this image of prehistoric human life is mistaken in every one of its Hobbesian details. Similarly, Darwin incorporated Thomas Malthus's unsubstantiated theories about the distant past into his own theorizing leading him to dramatic overestimations of early human suffering and thus of the comparative superiority of Victorian life. These pivotal misunderstandings persist in many contemporary evolutionary scenarios. Though he certainly didn't originate this narrative of the interminable tango 
between randy male and choosy female, Darwin beat the drum for its supposed naturalness and inevitability. He wrote, a pas he wrote passages like, quote, The female, with the rarest exception, is less eager than the male. She requires to be courted. She is coy and may often be seen endeavoring for a long time to escape the male. Unquote. While this female reticence is a key feature in the mating systems of many mammals, it isn't particularly applicable to human beings or, for that matter, the primates who most closely related to us. In light of the philandering he saw going on around him, Darwin wondered whether early humans might have been polygynists, one male mating with several females. Writing, quote, Judging from the social habits of man as he now exists, and from most savages being polygamists, the most probable view is that primeval man aboriginally lived in small communities, each with as many wives as he could support and obtain, whom he could have jealousy, rather jealously guarded against all other men. Unquote. Evolutionary psychologist Steven Pinker appears to be, quote, judging from the social habits of, a ma of man as he now exists, unquote, as well, though without Darwin's self-awareness, when he bluntly asserts, quote, in all societies, sex is at least somewhat dirty. It is conducted in private, pondered obsessively, regulated by custom and taboo, the subject of gossip and teasing and a trigger for jealous rage. Unquote. We'll show that while sex is indeed quote, regulated by custom and taboo, unquote, there are multiple exceptions to every other element of Pinker's overconfident declaration. Like all of us, Darwin incorporated his own personal experience or its absence into his assumptions about the nature of all human life. In The French Lieutenant's Woman, John Fowles gives a sense of the sexual hypocrisy that characterized Darwin's world. 19th century England, writes Fowles, was, quote, an age where woman was sacred and where you could buy a 13-year-old girl for a few pounds, a few shillings if you wanted her for only an hour or two where the female body had never been so hidden from view, and where every sculptor was judged by his ability to carve naked women, where it was universally maintained that women do not have orgasms, and yet every prostitute was taught to simulate them. Unquote. In some respects, the sexual mores of Victorian Britain replicated the mechanics of the age-defining steam engine. Blocking the flow of erotic energy creates ever-increasing pressure, which is put to work through short, controlled bursts of productivity. Though he was wrong about a lot, it appears Simon Freud got it right when he observed that civilization is built largely on erotic energy that has been blocked, concentrated, accumulated, and redirected. Quote, to keep body and mind untainted, 
explains Walter Houghton in the Victorian frame of mind. The boy was taught to view women as objects of the greatest respect and even awe. He was to consider nice women, his sister and mother, his future bride, as creatures more like angels than human beings, an image wonderfully calculated not only to dissociate love from sex, but to turn love into worship and worship of purity. Unquote. When not in the mood to worship the purity of his sisters, mother, daughters, and wife, men were expected to purge their lust with prostitutes, rather than threatening familial and social stability by cheating with decent women. 19th century philosopher Arthur Schopenhauer observed that there are 80,000 prostitutes in London alone, and what are, what are they if not sacrifices on the altar of monogamy? Unquote. Charles Darwin was certainly not affect, unaffected rather, by the erotophobia of this era. In fact, one could argue that he was especially sensitive to its influence inasmuch as he came of age in the intellectual shadow of his famous and shameless grandfather, Erasmus Darwin, who had flouted the sexual mores of his day by openly having children with various women and even going so far as to celebrate group sex in his poetry. The death of Charles's mother when he was just eight years old may well have enhanced his sense of women as angelic creatures floating above earthly urges and appetites. Psychiatrist John Bowlby, one of Darwin's most highly regarded biographers, attributes Darwin's lifelong anxiety attacks, depression, chronic headaches, dizziness, nausea, vomiting, and hysterical crying fits to the separation anxiety created by the early loss of his mother. This interpretation is supported by a strange letter the adult Charles wrote to a cousin whose wife had just died. Quote, Never in my life having lost one near relation, he wrote, apparently repressing his memories of his own mother's death. I dare say I cannot imagine how severe grief such as yours must be. Unquote. Another indication of his psychological scarring was recalled by his granddaughter, who remembered how confused Charles had been when someone added the letter M to the beginning of the word mother, rather other, in a game similar to Scrabble. Charles looked at the board for a long time before declaring, to everyone's confusion, that no such word existed. A hyper-Victorian aversion to an obsession with the erotic seems to have continued in Charles' Charles's eldest surviving daughter, Henrietta. Eddie, as she was known, edited her father's books, taking her blue crayon to passages she considered inappropriate. In Charles's biography of his free-thinking grandfather, for example, she deleted a reference to Erasmus's ardent love of women. She also removed offensive passages from The Descent of Man and Darwin's autobiography. Eddie's prim enthusiasm for stamping out anything sexual wasn't limited to the writing, written word. 
she waged a bizarre little war against the so-called stink horn mushroom, Phallus ravenelli, that still pops up in the woods around the Darwin estate. Apparently, the similarity of the mushroom to the human penis was a bit much poor for poor Eddie. As her niece, Charles's granddaughter, recalled years later, Aunt Eddie, armed with a basket and a pointed stick, and wearing a special hunting cloak and gloves, would set out in the search of the mushrooms. At the end of the day, Aunt Eddie burned them in the deepest secrecy on the drawing room, fire with door locked, because of the morals of the maids. Quote, he will hold thee when his passion shall have spent its novel force, something better than his dog, a little dearer than his horse. Unquote. Alfred, Lord Tennyson. <laughs>